Welcome to another edition of the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. I'll have readings for you today from The New Republic, Smithsonian Magazine, The Financial Times, Shift.com, and I'll be starting off with a couple of stories from a new source of information I've discovered called the Missouri Independent. And the first story is going to be Juneteenth celebrates just one of the United States' 20 Emancipation Days. It was published June 18, 2022 in the Missouri Independent and was written by Chris Manjapra. His last name is spelled capital M-A-N-J-A-P-R-A. The actual day was June 19, 1865, and it was the black dock workers in Galveston, Texas, who first heard the word that freedom for the enslaved had come. There were speeches, sermons, and shared meals, mostly held at black churches, the safest places to have such celebrations. The perils of unjust laws and racist social customs were still great in Texas for the 250,000 enslaved black people there. But the celebrations known as Juneteenth were said to have gone on for seven straight days. The spontaneous jubilation was partly over General Gordon Granger's General Order No. 3. It read in part, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance to a proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. But the emancipation that took place in Texas that day in 1865 was just the latest in a series of emancipations that had been unfolding since the 1770s, most notably the Emancipation Proclamation signed by President Abraham Lincoln two years earlier on January 1, 1863. As I explore my book, Black Ghost of Empire between the 1780s and 1930s during the era of liberal empire and the rise of modern humanitarianism, over 80 emancipations from slavery occurred from Pennsylvania in 1780 to Sierra Leone in 1936. There were, in fact, 20 separate emancipations in the United States alone from 1780 to 1865 across the U.S. North and South. In my view as a scholar of race and colonialism, Emancipation Days, Juneteenth in Texas, are not what many people think because emancipation did not do what most of us think it did. As historians have long documented, emancipations did not remove all the shackles that prevented black people from obtaining full citizenship rights. Nor did emancipations prevent states from enacting their own laws that prohibited black people from voting or living in white neighborhoods. In fact, based on my research, emancipations were actually designed to force blacks and the federal government to pay reparations to slave owners, not to the enslaved, thus ensuring white people maintain advantages in accruing and passing down wealth across generations. The emancipation shared three common features that, when added together, merely freed the enslaved in one sense, but re-enslaved them in another sense. The first, arguably the most important, was the ideology of gradualism, which said the atrocities against black people would be ended slowly over a long and open-ended period. The second feature was state legislators who held fast to the racist principle that emancipated people were units of slave owner property, not captives who had been subjected to crimes against humanity. The third was the insistence that black people had to take on various forms of debt in order to exit slavery, 
This included economic debt exacted by the ongoing forced and underpaid work that freed people had to pay to slave owners. In essence, freed people had to pay for their freedom while enslavers had to be paid to allow them to be free. The next section of the story is titled Emancipation Myths and Realities. On March 1, 1780, for instance, Pennsylvania state legislature set a global precedent for how emancipations would pay reparations to slave owners and buttress the system of white property rule. The Pennsylvania Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery stipulated that all persons, as well as Negroes and mulattoes as others, who shall be born within this state from and after the passing of this act, shall not be deemed and considered as servants for life or slaves. At the same time, the legislation prescribed that every Negro and mulatto child born within this state could be held in servitude until the age of 28 years and liable to like correction and punishment as enslaved people. After that first Emancipation Day in Pennsylvania, enslaved people still remained in bondage for the rest of their lives unless voluntarily freed by slave owners. Only the newborn children of enslaved women were nominally free after Emancipation Day. Even then, these children were forced to serve as bonded laborers from childhood until their 28th birthday. All future emancipations shared the Pennsylvania DNA. Emancipation Day came to Connecticut and Rhode Island on March 1, 1784. On July 4, 1799, it dawned in New York, and on July 4, 1804, in New Jersey. After 1838, West Indian people in the United States began commemorating the British Empire's Emancipation Day of August 1st. The District of Columbia's day came on April 16, 1862. Eight months later, on January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the enslaved only in Confederate states not in the states loyal to the Union, such as New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri. Emancipation Day dawned in Maryland on November 1, 1864. In the following year, emancipation was granted on January 11th in Missouri, April 3rd in Virginia, on May 8th in Mississippi, on May 20th in Florida, on May 29th in Georgia, on June 19th in Texas, and on August 8th in Tennessee and Kentucky. The next section of this reading is titled, Slavery by Another Name. After the Civil War, the three Reconstruction Amendments to the United States Constitution each contained loopholes that aided the ongoing oppression of black communities. The 13th Amendment of 1865 allowed for the enslavement of incarcerated people through convict leasing. The 14th Amendment of 1868 permitted incarcerated people to be denied the right to vote. And the 15th Amendment of 1870 failed to explicitly ban forms of voter suppression that targeted black voters and would intensify during the coming Jim Crow era. In fact, Granger's Order No. 3 on June 19, 1865 spelled it out. Freeing the slaves, the order read, involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them become that between employer and hired labor. Yet the order further states, the freed are advised to remain at their present homes and work for wages. 
They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. The next section of this reading is titled The Meaning of Juneteenth. Since the moment emancipation celebration started on March 1, 1780, all the way up to June 19, 1865, black crowds gathered to seek redress for slavery. On that first Juneteenth in Texas, and increasingly so during the ones that followed, free people celebrated their resilience amid the failure of emancipation to bring full freedom. They stood for the end of debt bondage, racial policing, and discriminatory laws that unjustly harmed black communities. They elevated their collective imagination from out of the spiritual sinkhole of white property rule. Over the decades, the traditions of Juneteenth ripened into larger gatherings in public parks with barbecue picnics and firecrackers and street parades with brass bands. At the end of his 1999 posthumously published novel, Juneteenth, noted black author Ralph Ellison called for a poignant question to be asked on Emancipation Day. How the hell do we get love into politics or compassion into history? The question calls for a pause as much today as ever before. That was a reading of the commentary. Juneteenth celebrates just one of the United States' 20 Emancipation Days. It was published June 18, 2022 at the MissouriIndependent.com website and was written by Chris Manjapra. There are three images that go along with this reading about Emancipation Day holidays. The first photograph is of six people, two women and four men. They've got on their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. They all have on hats, ties, and their formal dresses. The caption reads, Emancipation Day celebration, June 18, 1900, held in East Woods on East 24th Street, in Austin, Texas. The next image that goes along with this reading is a drawing of seven men sitting around a table. There are papers everywhere. In the middle of all these men, sitting cross-legged, is Abraham Lincoln. The caption reads, President Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation. The next photograph is a black and white image of a woman with an afro, Walking in a parade, the caption reads, A black woman raises her fist in the air during a Juneteenth reenactment celebration in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 2021. The second reading on today's African American Hour also comes from the MissouriIndependent.com website. The title is, New Missouri Law Mandates Removal of Discriminatory Covenants from Property Deeds. It was written June 30th, 2022, by Rebecca Rivas. The subtitle to this article is, Governor Mike Parson signed legislation requiring the removal of discriminatory language that still exists, though is unenforceable, in deeds of older homes. Governor Mike Parson signed a bill into law Thursday that requires antiquated housing restrictions based on race, national origin, or religion to be removed in all newly recorded deeds. Beginning in 1935, the federal government required housing developers to sign agreements or racial deed covenants that they would not sell their homes to non-Caucasians in order to be eligible for federal construction loans. 
Local governments across the country put forth similar restrictive covenants, with some also listing nationalities, religions, and individuals with disabilities. While it's been illegal since 1968, the discriminatory language still exists in deeds of older homes and is hurtful and offensive to potential buyers. One restrictive covenant in a southwestern Missouri home stated, No persons of any race other than white shall own this property and are not allowed to use or occupy any structure on the property unless they were there in the capacity as domestic servants. A U.S. Supreme Court ruling struck down states' ability to enforce discriminatory covenants nationwide in 1948, and the Federal Fair Housing Act of 1968 made the practice of writing racial covenants into deeds illegal. Missouri passed its own law in 1993, but the state legislators never set up a roadmap for how to take the language out of existing deeds. So they keep getting passed on from owner to owner. St. Louis and Kansas City were among the cities that led the nation in restrictive covenants. According to a recent study, St. Louis still had 30,000 properties with restrictive covenants. Missouri joins a handful of states that have recently enacted laws to remove such covenants from property records following Maryland, California, Illinois, Connecticut, and Virginia. The enforcement of the bill falls on the Recorder of Deeds office in each Missouri county. Under the legislation, the people who prepare or submit a deed for recording, typically a title company, would remove the language before sending it into the Recorder of Deeds. If the language is not removed, then the Recorder of Deeds office can refuse to accept the deed and send it back to the title company to make the changes. For homeowners who aren't intending on selling their home but would still like to remove the language from their deeds, Petrie said it would involve submitting a one-page document to the recorder's office, which would cost $24. Most of the revenue would go to the county employer retirement fund and county general revenue, she said, but $5.50 of it would stay with the recorder's office. This is the second year the bill was introduced. We think this is a really important good government cleanup to start getting some of these restrictive covenants that are not enforceable anyway, but get them off the books, said Jessica Petrie, a lobbyist for the Recorders Association of Missouri during a legislative hearing this spring. It's already 2022. That was a reading of the article, New Missouri Law Mandates Removal of Discriminatory Covenants from Property Deeds. It appeared in the MissouriIndependent.com, was written by Rebecca Rivas, and was published June 30th, 2022. The next reading in today's African-American Hour is from the hard copy of Smithsonian Magazine. The title is America's Home Run. It's written by Lonnie G. Bunch, who is secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. It was published in the April and May 2022 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. The title of the reading is America's Home Run. The subtitle is an exhibition at the National Postal Museum puts a new stamp on the history of the nation's favorite pastime. There's one photograph that goes along with this reading. It shows baseball player Jackie Robinson sitting and smiling in a baseball locker room. The caption reads, Jackie Robinson seen savoring a 1956 win over Pittsburgh, debuted in the major leagues on April 15, 1947 as Brooklyn's first baseman. Some of my earliest memories are sitting next to my grandfather, watching Jackie Robinson play first base for the Brooklyn Dodgers. 
I was too young to know what the Dodgers were, who Robinson was, or why my grandfather was glued to the television. But I knew this moment meant something special to him. In the following years, I began to understand what had kept his eyes on the screen, though my team was the Yankees. I played baseball diligently growing up, but I was never great. Still, like my grandfather and like millions of other Americans, I fell in love with the sport. The strength and the patience required to step up to the plate, waiting for the pitch to come. The grace and skill of the outfielders sprinting and diving through the vast green expanse. The courage of folks like Robinson, Brooklyn Dodgers catcher Roy Campanella, and Dodgers pitcher Don Newcomb, who changed the face of the sport. Decades later, when I had the opportunity to work with Jackie Robinson-related collections at the National Museum of American History, I felt that I was honoring my grandfather's passion. This spring, the Smithsonian is celebrating the start of baseball season with Baseball America's Home Run, opening at the National Postal Museum in April. Featuring hundreds of United States and international stamps commemorating great players and historic moments, the exhibition approaches the story from a unique global perspective. America's Home Run explores the origins of the sport in the early 19th century, baseball's rise in worldwide popularity throughout the 20th century, and the sport's most storied fields in the communities that call them home. Importantly, because 2022 marks the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's integrating Major League Baseball, the exhibition will detail both baseball's history of segregation and how the sport enabled people of color, immigrant groups, and other disenfranchised communities to claim their Americanness and their equality. For generations, baseball had been an expression of national identity. I am so proud that the National Postal Museum can enrich our understanding of baseball by helping casual observers and diehard fans alike learn something new. And like so many around the country, I can't wait to watch this season once it begins. That was America's Home Run, written by Lonnie G. Bunch, who is secretary of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. This appeared in Smithsonian Magazine's April and May 2022 edition. The next reading on today's African-American Hour is titled Ghana's Return Tours Tap Celebrity African-Americans and Overlook a Reality. It's from the website skift.com. That's S-K-I-F-T. It was written by Labawit Gurma, capital L-E-B-A-W-I-T, capital G-I-R-M-A, and was originally published May 9, 2022. The subtitle to this article is Ghana's push to attract more African-Americans to visit and invest makes sense. But using celebrities to drive the campaign is problematic. Not least, two years of pandemic means residents will increasingly scrutinize the tourism sector and demand a transparent long term plan to benefit host communities. In December 2020, The Ghanaian government launched the Beyond the Return campaign as a follow-up to its record-breaking Year of Return initiative, which brought 1.1 million visitors and $3.3 billion in tourism revenues in 2019. COVID predictably stifled the start of this next phase, designed as a 10-year strategy to attract African Americans to visit as well as invest in Ghana. That didn't stop the Ghanaian government and its tourism board, however, from continuing to market the affluent African-Americans as the recovery continues. 
and they're doing it by tapping into the power of African-American celebrities. Superstar buzz combined with a strong heritage narrative to sell a destination isn't a new marketing tactic. But in a pandemic world in which Ghanaian communities have been hit hard, African-American celebrities touting their lavish vacations online, including photos with the president of Ghana, has sparked controversy, first reported in OK Africa. It's also launched an important conversation about the inequity that this marketing approach may be driving. Therein lies the conundrum. How will African-American stars driving tourism and repatriation numbers translate into economic empowerment and an improved quality of life for its host communities? And what is the long-term impact of a tourism campaign that encourages the mass exodus of privileged African-Americans to Ghana? We definitely talk about it and think there's tension around it right now because people are not seeing what the benefits could be in the future for the average Ghanaian citizen, said Kristen Quay, African-American co-founder of Certified Africa, a lifestyle and tour company that recently partnered with United Airlines to offer Africa travel packages. Locals feel the celebrities who are coming to Ghana are painting their country in a way that doesn't reflect the reality on ground, Quay says. They are utilizing the celebrities to attract the average African-American citizen, which I might point out, the average African-American visitor is not taking pictures with the president and doing all those things that celebrities do. But when they come, they spend money in the country and it trickles down. Skift reached out to the Ghana Tourism Authority and the Ghana Hotels Association, but did not hear back in time for publication. For Kwame Gasu, a native resident of Accra, the government's use of African-American celebrities is a great strategy. It has paid off. Ghana is the number one tourism hub in Africa when it comes to Christmas. Everybody talks about it, said Gasu, co-founder of advertising and digital marketing startup Detalon Africa, while recognizing the city gets overcrowded and costly. Ghanaians want African-Americans to return, Gasu added, but they want African-Americans who will contribute positively to the country's economic comeback. My mission is to bridge these gaps and to tackle the difficult questions, said Rashad McCrory, African-American founder of tour company Ghana Cross Culture. McCrory was installed in May as a tourism chief for the town of Ituré, capital I-T-U-R-E, the first such designation in the country. People think Ghana is all about tourism and an alternative lifestyle for an American income at a discounted value when there's more interpersonal dynamics and relationship ironing that needs to happen. For all the African-American celebrities touting Ghana as paradise, the lack of a transparent government plan to set up locals for success through this heritage and repatriation bonanza is now as evident as the country's weakened economy post-pandemic. What I think a lot of people can't see now are the long-term effects of what could happen, said Elia Alorol, a travel expert and writer at Negra Bohemian, citing to Liberia as a great example. Freed black Americans who were sent by ship to Liberia created their own elite societies, lived better than the native Africans, and dominated politics. That created tensions that continue today, including civil wars, Grant Alorol said. If you think in the context of what does Ghana look like in 20 years or 30 years and could the same tensions be created? And is this really settler colonialism, but in different skin tones? The next section of this article is titled A Pre-Pandemic Tourism Ascent. 
Tourism in Ghana is on a steady growth pre-pandemic, representing the country's fourth largest foreign exchange earner, according to Visit Ghana. In the last decade, the government has claimed to prioritize tourism growth with pre-pandemic projections of 8 million tourist arrivals by 2027 and $8.3 billion in revenue per the National Tourism Development Plan. COVID stunted those plans, but its hospitality sector is now close to recovering 2019 levels, according to the Ghana Hotels Association. An estimated 5,000 African Americans have also relocated to Ghana since the summer of 2020. While waiting for the Beyond the Return campaign to pick up steam, however, Ghana Tourism Authority has turned its attention to wooing tourists from the rest of the world with a goal of 1 million visitors per year and $3.2 billion in revenue in 2022. Domestic tourism is also receiving more attention. But there is criticism that tourism in Ghana lacks a clear policy to drive the long-term success and growth of the sector. Everything that has been done seems to be a knee-jerk approach to dealing with something that demands constant and deliberate action, says Samuel Apa, content editor of Voyages Afrique. The next section of this reading is titled, A Curated View of Ghana. Sources who spoke to Skift agree that most tourists judge Ghana based on Accra and their upscale experiences there, which the celebrity-led campaign reinforces. It felt a bit more organic initially when we had celebrities coming into the country by virtue of their lineage, said Rich Hackman, a content producer and founder of The Board Brand, a marketing consultancy in reference to the year of return. The government then seemingly decided to piggyback off that natural celebrity pull, Hackman added. Hackman, who was Ghanaian-born and raised in New York City, said African-Americans' conversation about Ghana needs to be more nuanced beyond a focus on their heritage connection, albeit the latter is important for them to have and share. Most of their experience is very curated. You connect with an organization on the ground in the country that shepherds you around from tourist attraction to tourist attraction, and the harsher realities on the ground may be briefly touched on, but you're not getting the real experience. When you have severe poverty and you hear African-Americans talking about their luxurious life there, it starts to become an issue, Hackman said. Gasu agreed that most people misrepresent and judge the country based on what they see in Accra. From the public relation or the videos that visitors see about Ghana, it's all the good stuff. Nobody talks about the negative stuff. The next section of the reading is called Tourism and Equities Surface. Showing the lavish side of a destination has been the industry's modus operandi since its creation. But after the last two harrowing years, the flaws of that approach are ultra-visible to locals who don't see the gains translate into an improved quality of life despite deeper inequalities. The income that comes from tourism revenue shouldn't just go into people's pockets. Reinvest it into the communities where those places are. Make those places cleaner, Sikasu adding that the country's main tourism sites have remained in a state of abandonment. The Ghanaian government announced in April that it would infuse $25 million into refurbishment of major tourism sites. I always say that the Kwame Nkrumah Museum was nicer when I was a kid than it's looking now, said Gasu, adding that neglected spots include the Independence Square's monument. Sometimes it is even a pain to go out of Accra and visit other sites because the roads are so bad. You don't believe this is Ghana. It doesn't depict the Ghana we read in foreign news that people talk about. Ghana Cross Cultures McCrory said he didn't believe that everything is corruption. 
I'm not surprised that people will say in 2019 all this money was made and we haven't seen any development. It's probably still going through this Ghanaian bureaucracy that takes things almost forever to get done. Meanwhile, the consequences of attracting privileged African-American travelers keep mounting. Real estate in Ghana is listed in U.S. dollars, sources confirmed, while unemployment tops the conversation list of post-pandemic woes as non-Ghanaians are blamed for driving up the cost of life in Accra. But the conversation cuts both ways, McCrory said, as many Ghanaian businesses, from taxis to mom-and-pop stores, tend to push up their prices when they know they're dealing with African-Americans. If you're going to charge Ghanaians one price and Americans another price, understand that eventually it's going to come out and it's going to build that tension between Ghanaians and Americans, said McCrory. These are things that can't stay secret. The next section is titled, A New Ecosystem for West Africa. Beyond the celebrity buzz, the Ghanaian government is building an ecosystem that doesn't yet exist in West Africa in the way it does in East Africa. Certified Africa's Quay said about the Beyond the Return campaign, and it's an effort that's in its infant stages. Quay first visited Ghana in 2016 as a law student, during which time she clerked at the Supreme Court of Ghana and met her husband. Through Certified Africa, Quay and her husband connect African-American tourists and investors with local Ghanaian entrepreneurs to build those relationships so they'll want to come back and invest. We have to look at it in two parts. You don't sell with the issues that Africa comes with, but when they come, we show them the lavish, but then we also tell them, hey, this is the reality, said Quay. We have a service day. We show them what's happening and how they can help empower people. It's the potential for collaboration born out of this joint heritage that's promising, Quay added, while rejecting the notion of coming and saving Africa. There needs to be community organizations and departments in place to tackle the issues, McCrory said, and it's an adjustment that will take longer than a couple of years as part of natural community building dynamics. As a black American from Harlem, New York, I am very privy to the idea of gentrification, and in some ways, it's a form of gentrification. However, the two groups of people, the black American or diaspora and the Ghanaians, they're not enemies per se. It's not a purposeful displacement. Pulling at the wound of African-Americans who don't have a flag to stand under in the way Jamaicans or Trinidadians do, for instance, made this a perfect marketing scheme, Grant O'Laurel said, noting that campaigns target those who are North America-based and therefore have the capital. McCrory, who first visited the continent in 2015, said there's a bigger picture unfolding. I believe we're only in year three of a 70 to 100-year Great Migration, and Ghana is the gateway. People are coming here for the first time, but they're not all moving here. Now they're going to Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Rwanda, South Africa. It's the way that most of us left, so it's only right that this is the way that most of us are coming back in. It's like the front door in a way. The next section is titled, A Call for Transparency. As the African-American celebrity vacation in Accra keeps flashing across screens in upcoming months, there's hope that this polarizing marketing approach will deepen the conversation on what defines a value visitor and what the economic promise will be for Ghana's tourism sector and Ghanaians. Tourism is more than just taking people places here and there and let's have fun, said McCrory. Tourism is planning, strategy, budgeting, financing, infrastructure building, and also providing safety. Not only safety for your tourists, but safety from tourists. And this is an example of protecting the community from people moving into the community. 
For Hackman, it's unclear how Ghana will get there from these glitzy marketing campaigns, and the current conversation is short-sighted. Certified Africa's Quay agreed that it's clear the government needs to put in place mechanisms for locals to tap into the influx of African-Americans, such as training programs in these various sectors in which African-Americans are launching businesses. There's nothing wrong with people feeling a connection and moving there, but there's a fine line when privileged travelers start moving to a destination in droves, said Negra Bohemian's Grant Aloro. What is the fine line between I want to move there because of X, Y, Z, and even if I have all those reasons, is this ethical anymore for the people who actually live there? As for the black celebrities who've signed on to promote Ghana to their fellow affluent African-Americans, they may not be aware of the full consequences of their efforts to lure affluent compatriots into the local ecosystem. There is an element of it that does fall heavily on the government, said Grant Laurel. What they're looking to do and what their projects are and what their vision for the country is and the future. That was a reading of the article, Ghana's Return Tours Tap Celebrity African Americans and Overlook Reality. It was at the skift.com website. It was written by Labawit Gurma and was published May 9th, 2022. My next reading for you today is an article from Psychology Today. It's titled, Yes, You're on Their Mind. It was written by Devin Fry and appears in the July 2022 edition of Psychology Today magazine, and I am reading from the hard copy of the magazine. We spend a significant portion of our lives in conversation with others, and after a discussion ends, we often continue to think about the person we spoke to, pondering their advice, relitigating disagreements, or wondering what the encounter meant to them. New research, however, suggests that we don't often realize that our conversation partners are thinking about us just as much, an oversight that may have consequences for our relationships. Across eight studies, subjects participated in or recalled conversations with strangers, friends, or intimate partners, reporting how much they thought about the person afterward and estimating how much they were thought about in return. Overall, participants systematically underestimated how frequently they were thought of by conversation partners. This thought gap, as it was dubbed by the researchers, increased significantly when the conversation was an ongoing or serious argument. When you have a ton of evidence of your own thoughts and zero evidence of the other person's, it's hard to assume they're thinking the same way you are, explained study author Gus Cooney, a psychologist at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Cooney's past research also found evidence of a liking gap in which people consistently underestimated how much conversation partners like them. Combined with the thought gap, he says, we may simply be overly pessimistic about the effect we have on others. We have so many critical thoughts in our head about how other people feel about us and how often they think about us, he speculates. But those thoughts don't necessarily have much basis in reality. In the current study, this overly pessimistic outlook appeared to have consequences. The less participants believe that their conversation partner was thinking about them after an argument, the less likely they were to believe reconciliation was on the horizon. Believing that others rarely give us a passing thought can be isolating and lonely. But on average, the people we talk to appear to think of us just as often as we think of them. Cooney notes, 
a fact that might be especially comforting after an argument. When ruminating on a disagreement, he suggests, reminding yourself that the other person is likely doing the same could put you on the path to reconciliation. That was an article from the hard copy of the July issue of Psychology Today titled, Yes, You're on Their Mind, written by Devin Fry. Up next on today's African American Hour, I'm going back to the Smithsonian Magazine again. But this is from the website smithsonianmag.com. The title is The Black Buffalo Soldiers Who Biked Across the American West. It was written by David Kendi and was published June 14th, 2022. The subtitle to this article is In 1897, the 25th Infantry Regiment Bicycle Corps embarked on a 1,900-mile journey from Montana to Missouri. The long line of bicyclists caught the eye of residents in Big Timber, Montana. Dressed in blue gingham shirts and campaign hats, the United States Army riders had large knapsacks with bedrolls strapped to their handlebars and rifles slung over their backs. Tired and bedraggled, Members of the cycling caravan smiled as they rode into the tiny town next to the Yellowstone River in late June 1897. Comprising 20 soldiers, two officers, and one reporter, the group was about one week into a cross-country trek designed to show Army brass the efficacy of transporting troops by bicycle. At the time, just before the start of the 20th century and the dawn of automobiles, much of the world was fixated on cycling as a means of mobility. Officially dubbed the 25th Infantry Regiment Bicycle Corps, the men were members of one of six racially segregated units formed by the Army just after the Civil War. Black enlistees, led mainly by white officers, the regiment served on the nation's western frontier, where they clashed with Native Americans who supposedly nicknamed them Buffalo Soldiers due to their curly hair's resemblance to buffalo manes. Also known as Iron Riders, the Volunteer Bicycle Corps set out from Fort Missoula, Montana on June 14, 1897, embarking on a 1,900-mile odyssey to St. Louis, Missouri. They hadn't planned to spend much time in the town of Big Timber, but an elderly, exuberant Civil War veteran convinced them to stick around, insisting on buying drinks for the soldiers at a local tavern. During their 41-day journey, the cyclists pedaled up mountains, through forests, over deserts, and across rivers riding on dirt trails, unpaved roads, and railroad tracks to avoid the sticky gumbo mud, as they called it. They biked upward of 50 miles per day, alternately enduring snow, freezing sleet, hail, heavy rain, and oppressive heat. Their feet made headlines around the country and demonstrated the Buffalo Soldiers' tenacity at a time of widespread racism both in the military and outside of it. They did an amazing thing, says Christiana Eilofson. Capital K-R-I-S-T-J-A-N-A, capital E-Y-J-O-L-F-S-S-O-N, Director of Education at the Historical Museum at Fort Missoula. It's great to think about their experience going across country, how they might have impacted people that they met and how they captured the attention of the world since it was covered in so many newspapers. This year, in honor of the 125th anniversary of the Iron Riders trip, Local historical groups are hosting a series of commemorative events along the cyclist route. The action kicked off with a ceremony bike ride that started at 5.40 a.m. today, the same time the soldiers began their ride. 
1897, the idea of using bicycles, introduced in the early 19th century and fine-tuned over the following decades, to transport troops had been around for some time. Some sources suggest that messengers and scouts fighting in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871 used two-wheeled vehicles. Militaries in Britain, Spain, and other countries tested bicycles and found they were well-suited for reconnaissance and delivering dispatches across a variety of terrain. Bikes also proved less expensive and easier to maintain than the horses typically used by cavalries. In the United States, Lieutenant General Nelson A. Miles, a veteran of the Civil War and the American Indian Wars, emerged as a key advocate of using bikes in the Army. Following the example of the 1st Signal Corps of the Connecticut National Guard, which in 1891 became the first American unit to formally utilize bicycles, Miles authorized several trials to determine the effectiveness of the new mode of transportation, including relay teams that delivered messages from Chicago to New York and Washington, D.C. to Denver. The bicycle has been found exceedingly useful in reconnoitering different sections of the country, and it is my purpose to use, to some extent, troops stationed at different posts to make practice marches and reconnaissance, he wrote in an 1895 report. A newly commissioned lieutenant, fresh out of West Point, soon proposed a more comprehensive test. As one of the white officers stationed with the 25th Infantry at Fort Missoula, James A. Moss wanted to send Buffalo soldiers on a lengthy ride across rough terrain in the West. His request, designed to gauge how both troops and bicycles would fare in such a challenge, eventually ended up with Miles, who approved it in 1896. With Miles' backing, Moss set the wheels in motion for the Iron Riders. He approached several bicycle makers for donations of equipment. A.J. Spaulding and Brothers, which would later become a major manufacturer of sporting goods, agreed to participate and develop the Military Special, a modified version of one of its popular models. Design changes included a sturdier front fork that absorbed the bumps of the rough roads, an ergonomically designed seat for comfort on long rides, and metal tire rims. Wheels in those days were often made of wood, which tended to break under harsh conditions. Mars began drilling his troops almost immediately, leading them on daily rides in increasingly challenging conditions. In August 1896, the Bicycle Corps embarked on a round-trip expedition to Yellowstone National Park, about 275 miles southeast of Fort Missoula. Including Moss, nine men participated in the Yellowstone Trial. Among them were black soldiers Sergeant Dalbert P. Green and Corporal John G. Williams, musician William Brown and Privates Frank L. Johnson, William Proctor, William Haynes, Elwood Foreman, and John Finley, who had previously been employed at the Imperial Bicycle Works in Chicago and knew how to repair bicycles. The ride was a success, though not without its challenges. The men had to ride on bikes that, when packed with gear and food, weighed almost 80 pounds each. Bad weather, flat tires, and equipment failure slowed progress, and the soldiers were often tired from pedaling up steep inclines on their single-gear bicycles. Modern racing and touring bicycles have upward of 27 gears that make pedaling easier when adjusted to fit specific terrain and conditions. Despite this, they covered 797 miles in 126 hours of biking and even stopped for an iconic photo at the Minerva Terrace at Mammoth Hot Springs. By the following year, Moss and his men were ready to tackle a longer ride to St. Louis. 
The operation took considerable planning, including scheduling the resupply of food, clothing, and replacement gear at key drop-off points. For the 1897 journey, Moss expanded the unit to 20 soldiers. They included five men from the Yellowstone trip, Finley, Foreman, Haynes, Johnson, and Proctor, as well as Sergeant Mingo Sanders, Lieutenant Corporal Abram Martin, musician Elias Johnson, and Privates George Scott, Hiram Dingham, Travis Bridges, John Cook, Richard Rout, Eugene Jones, Sam Johnson, William Williamson, Sam Williamson, John H. Wilson, Samuel Reed, and Francis Button. Excitement abounded as the June 14th start date approached. Moss wrote that his men were bubbling over with enthusiasm, about as fine a looking and well-disciplined a lot as could be found anywhere in the United States Army. This time around, Moss's team included a doctor, Lieutenant James M. Kennedy, the regiment's assistant surgeon, and a reporter, Edward Booz, of the Daily Missoulian. Booz's articles appeared in newspapers around the country providing details of what happened during the ride. Other than Moss's army reports, Booz's accounts provide the only known record of the Buffalo soldiers' experiences during this historic journey. Scholars have found no written documentation by the Iron Riders themselves. Both narratives reflect the racial stereotypes and racism of the day, often focusing on the vernacular language used by the black soldiers. In the July 17th issue of the Daily Missoulian, Booz detailed how the Bicycle Corps navigated mountain roads, cactus beds, and wagon roads. He added, it was a grand ride and beset with many difficulties from the incessant rains along the route. Few accidents were reported and those were of no consequence. There were no delays made for pleasure and the boys pedaled hard to make a good record and have accomplished it. The whole world was watching the result. The route took the Bicycle Corps through woodlands and deserts in five states, Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, Nebraska, and Missouri. As they crossed the Continental Divide, the soldiers straddled the mountaintop and looked down the Atlantic and Pacific slopes. They had to ford swift rivers, often carrying their bicycles over their heads, and traverse railroad tracks to avoid the vicious mud that swallowed up their tires and prevented them from riding. It was very grueling for them, said Eric Cedeno, an extreme adventure cyclist who is recreating the trip to mark the quadricentennial of the original ride. He plans to arrive in St. Louis on July 24th, the anniversary of the original ride's conclusion. There's a section just before Helena, Montana, that's 12 miles of an uphill climb, Sedaniel says. It's exhausting. Most of the men learn to ride while being trained in drills and shorter trips. What really amazes me is that they were able to ride 1,900 miles on a single speed. While still high in the Rockies in mid-June, the Buffalo soldiers encountered a spring snowstorm that coated their tents. The shivering troops had to wait a few hours for the snow to melt before resuming their journey. The moment resonated strongly with Bobby McDonald, who is helping to organize this year's commemoration. President of the Black Chamber of Commerce of Orange County and a member of the Buffalo Soldiers 9th and 10th Horse Cavalry National Association, he spent the past few months traveling between California and Montana to prepare the anniversary. In May, he was surprised by a fickle change in the weather while at Fort Missoula. It was snowing, says McDonald, whose father served with the 24th Infantry Regiment during World War II and the Korean War. That's when it really hit me. These guys had to go through this. I realized what a monumental achievement they had accomplished. In late June and early July, the Iron Riders faced extreme heat and a lack of potable water in the sand hills of Nebraska. 
Several men, including Moss, became ill after drinking alkaline water, which has a higher pH level than regular drinking water, and had to catch up with the rest of the group via train. In a report to the War Department, Moss wrote, We suffered considerably from its bad effects. For several hundred miles through these states, the only water fit to drink had to be gotten from the railroad water tanks. For the most part, the Buffalo soldiers received warm welcomes from the public for undertaking the arduous journey. The farther south they went, however, the more discrimination they faced. As the group approached Missouri, a border state that only abolished slavery in 1865, they were turned away from camping on certain farms. Indeed, equal treatment did not accompany the enthusiasm that met the Bicycle Corps upon completion of their journey, wrote Alexandra Cole in a 2010 article for the Western Historical Quarterly. While the men had shared cooking duties and close quarters on the ride itself, once in St. Louis, the white and black members of the expedition ate their meals in separate locations. The officers dined at the Cottage Hotel in Forest Park while the troops ate in the bicycle shed. At the end of the journey on July 24th, mounted police and almost 1,000 amateur cyclists from a local club escorted the Buffalo soldiers into St. Louis, where they took part in a parade and receptions. An estimated 10,000 people visited the Corps campsite. Moss considered the expedition an unqualified success. Over 1,900 miles, his men averaged a punishing 55.9 miles daily on the 34 days they traveled maintaining a speed of 6.3 miles per hour. Seven days were set aside for rest and repairs. The practical result of the trip shows that an Army Bicycle Corps can travel twice as fast as cavalry or infantry over any conditions and at one-third the cost and effort, Moss told the United States Army and Navy Journal. The men had planned to ride part of the way back to Fort Missoula, but the Army instead decided to send them back by train. Though Moss continued to push for bicycle expeditions, technological advances and an impeding war got in the way of these plans. The Army disbanded the Bicycle Corps, realizing that the mechanized infantry, not bicycles, was the way of the future. When the Spanish-American War erupted in the spring of 1898, the 25th Infantry was one of the first units mobilized. Its members distinguished themselves in Cuba by coming to the aid of Colonel Theodore Roosevelt and the Rough Riders at the Battle of San Juan Hill. This valiant support was quickly forgotten in light of the so-called Brownsville Affair, which took place in Brownsville, Texas, in August 1906. Amid heightened racial tensions between white locals and the black soldiers stationed at nearby Fort Brown, a gunfight broke out, resulting in the death of one white civilian and the injury of another. White residents blamed the Buffalo soldiers for the incident, ignoring the regiment commander's testimony that all of the men had been in their barracks at the time of the attack. In 1908, then-President Roosevelt ordered the dishonorable discharge of 167 soldiers from the 25th Infantry Regiment for their alleged conspiracy of silence. The decision drew criticism from both white and black observers, with supporters of the soldiers pointing to evidence that the men had been framed. Several white officers and politicians tried to have the order reversed to no avail. They vouched for the character of the men, including Mingo Sanders, one of the Iron Riders and a hero of the Spanish-American War. He was one year short of retirement and was denied military benefits because of the discharge. Brigadier General Andrew Burt, who served as colonel in the 25th before his retirement, testified in front of a Senate committee that there was no better first sergeant in the Army 
that Sanders' veracity was beyond question and that he could be depended upon under all circumstances. Congress only reversed Roosevelt's ruling in 1972 after historians' investigation of the affair brought it to the public's attention again. The legislative body authorized honorable discharges for all 167 men, offering $25,000 to one of the two survivors whom congressional staffers managed to track down and awarding $10,000 each to a dozen widows of the now-deceased soldiers. Moss, who was born and raised in Louisiana, continued to lead African-American groups throughout his career. Despite espousing racist views, he came to respect the men who fought and died beside him in the Spanish-American War in World War I when he was a colonel in the all-black 367th Infantry Regiment. I commanded colored troops in the Cuban campaign and in the Philippine campaign, he wrote, and at no time did they ever falter at the command to advance nor hesitate at the order to charge. I am glad that I am to command colored soldiers in this, my third campaign, and in the greatest war the world has ever known. There are several images that go along with this reading from Smithsonian Magazine. The first shows eight of the soldiers with their bicycles and gear standing on a rock outcropping. The subtitle reads, Members of the 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps pose on Minerva Terrace at Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone National Park in 1896. The next image shows the whole group lined up with their bicycles and gear on a set of railroad tracks. The caption reads, To avoid thick mud and soft sand, the soldiers walk their bikes along railroad tracks. The next image is a map that shows the route the soldiers took. You see a drawing of the states of Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri. The caption reads, The 1,900-mile route traversed mountains, rivers, and deserts in five states. The next image is a picture of the soldiers pushing their bicycles up a very steep hill. The caption reads, The 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps in Yellowstone National Park. The next image that goes along with the reading shows six of the soldiers carrying their bicycles across a creek. The subtitle reads, The Buffalo Soldiers Often Had to Carry Their Bikes Over Swift-Running Rivers and Streams. And the final photograph that goes along with this reading shows the whole group posed in a field with a mountain behind them and trees off to their left. And their white officer is out in front standing at attention. The caption reads, Lieutenant James Moss led the Bicycle Corps on its historic ride across the American West. That was a reading of the article, The Black Buffalo Soldiers Who Biked Across the American West. It appeared in Smithsonian Magazine's smithsonianmag.com website on June 14, 2022, and was written by David Kendi. We're going to wrap up today's African American Hour with an audiobook review from audiophilemagazine.com. The title of the audiobook is An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States, written by Kyle T. Mays, read by Sean Taylor Corbett. It falls into the category of history. 
It should take 8.25 hours to read, and the book was published in 2021. This review was published in June of 2022. At a time when it seems that every school's curriculum is under scrutiny, this audiobook educates listeners about people and events that are not included in many history books, the stories of Black and Indigenous Americans from pre-revolutionary times to the present. Narrator Sean Taylor Corbett's performance is precise and captures listeners' attention from start to finish. With a delivery that would be the envy of teachers everywhere, Taylor Corbett uses tones and inflection to infuse every chapter of its own personality. The resulting performance gives life to the author's perspective on issues and cultural icons that range from contemporary protests to the civil rights movement of the 20th century to the Declaration of Independence and seemingly everything in between. That was a review of the audiobook An Afro-Indigenous History of the United States by Kyle T. Mays. This review appeared at the audiophilemagazine.com website in June of 2022. That's all for this week's African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner. Thank you for listening.